new pepper juice track today. <laughs> <laughs> when there was a soda can opening, I thought it was going to be like a master cut of me every time I do something off mic. That is incredible. Oh, that was in time too. Pepper Juice is the official band of the Bike Shed. Uh huh. I don't think they know that, but we know that. That's what they get for reaching out to us. <laughs> I just, I sincerely enjoy Pepper Juice's music. This is a new Pepper Juice joint. Yeah. Just dropped today. This is listen number four. Listen number four. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So Steph, how's it going? It's going great. I do have a little bit of unfortunate news. So in my time out in Park City, uh, which I'm back, I'm back in Boston now, so this is great. You and I are recording in person, which is always lovely. I didn't see a single moose. Not a single moose showed itself Aww. to me in Park City. I'm going to be honest, when you started that, and also we've been talking for a few minutes off air, and then we start the episode, and you're like, I have some bad news. I'm like, oh, God, what's happening? <laughs> but you didn't see a moose. Okay, we can deal. We can. I'm I'm sorry that you didn't don't, get to see a moose. Don't trivialize my right, lack of moose sighting. <laughs> just, I went on an emotional roller coaster there, and I just, I'm glad that that's where we, but I'm sorry for your not seeing a moose. These are, these are my big problems in life. I have such a, such a hard life. <laughs> But anywho, outside of that, I'm reading a book that I'm really enjoying mm. that I figure would be worth sharing because it's just been a lot of fun and it's still techie related. The name of the book is The Cuckoo's Egg is Tracking a Spy Through the Maze of Computer Espionage, written by Clifford Stoll. And Cliff Stoll, he is an astronomer, and at one point while working at the Berkeley University, he was relocated to working in the computer division as a systems administrator. And one day his boss asked him to follow up on an accounting error or issue that they couldn't figure out where someone had clocked 75 cents worth of time on a machine, but they didn't know who to allocate the money to. Or So it's essentially an accounting concern that his boss had and asked Cliff to dig into it. And as he's looking to figure out who the person is so then they can appropriate the cost to a person. He found out that it's actually someone that is on the system that's not supposed to be and they've gained super user access through a particular vulnerability in the move mail function of the original GNU Emacs, which I, I don't know what GNU means. Do you actually know what that stands for? I think so, although the story in my head sounds ridiculous as I play it back, but I believe GNU is an acronym or an initialism. I forget which is which, but it stands for GNU is not Unix. And so it is a recursive backronym, which is a thing that apparently we do as a species. <laughs> All right, cool. Didn't know that. But that's been kind of the fun about this book is, one, it's Cliff who is following this individual and essentially tracing this hacker that's in the system. And this is back in like mid-1980s, 1986. So hackers aren't really a thing at that time, or at least they're not like widely known about. It's not a concern. A lot of the computers are still very open on the network. So you can just sort of like call each computer and often just use some of the default like username and passwords to get in, which is essentially how this hacker is moving around. But the hacker needs to use other people's system and so there's little traces and so Cliff has set up some really cool ways to sort of watch the hacker and try to figure out who they are. So you're just on this cool journey of trying to figure out with the author who this person is, what they're interested in. And one of the reasons the book came across my 
interest is because I've heard that it's one of the books that really kicked off the DevOps world, where a lot of the tools and a lot of the ways that he applies logic and physics and other rules to sort of figure out who the hacker is that folks are still using, or at least started using those tactics when they were also trying to keep their system safe. And it's taught me some more about systems back from like the 1980s that I just wasn't aware of. Like for Unix, there was the Berkeley version of Unix, and then there's the AT&T version of Unix. So they could tell that this person was not familiar with the Berkeley version of Unix, but they knew they were familiar with AT&T based on certain commands that they were writing. So it's just really fun. I'm not done with it yet, but so far it's amazing, and I highly recommend it. Is it written more as like a mystery novel or a like nonfiction retelling of a thing, or what's the like structure of the story? It's definitely nonfiction, where the author is essentially just sharing every day with you and every journey that they're going through, and then all the different people that they're reaching out to to communicate and to look for help, and all their learnings that they're going through as well. Because he is not a computer person by heart or by education. So a lot of it is also the author and what he's discovering in this process, and how networks work, and how the system is managed by people outside of Berkeley, and then how you're able to navigate to the different computer systems. So it's very much nonfiction. You're just sort of like on this journey with this person who does a great job of telling that story, and then includes like some fun things. I love when authors do this. So at one point, the author mentioned that they'd made some chocolate chip cookies, and at the bottom of the footnote, they included their recipe for the chocolate chip cookies, <laughs> which is totally not related to the story, but I still love it. So it's just it's just fun. And if you really want to go along for this adventure, you bake the cookies at that point, you eat them, and then you're like, you're there. Scent and taste are so associated with memory. Like, this all this all works. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so glad you get it. Oh, well, that sounds fun. I would definitely like to check that. I like the idea of uh, like storytelling with a deeply technical facet to it, or like that approach to telling a deeply technical story. I don't actually know much about that period. And I still don't know Unix versus POSIX versus Linux versus uh, there's some weird Venn diagram. And I have no idea who and which overlap with what. But yeah, interesting. And this feels like the nice way to sort of like take in some of that new information because the author is also a beginner in this world. So a lot of the narrative and explanations are from that beginner perspective. So it's very enlightening. And it's like, oh, that's a really great way to phrase that. Even if it's something that you're familiar with already, you just learn a new way of sort of like describing it to someone else. So what's going on in your world? Well, yesterday uh, was actually a very interesting day for me. I went to PAX for the first time, PAX East, so the Penny Arcade. I don't know what the X is for, but it's a convention for sort of gamers, both in the video game and virtual reality and then tabletop uh, strategy type games, sort of that whole spectrum of things. It was super interesting. It's a giant, giant convention in the Boston's, uh, not the Seaport Expo Center, but one of the bigger convention spaces that we have in the city, just completely filled. And we were there on Thursday and it was still packed. And apparently on the weekend, it's just bananas. But it was awesome. It was the first time I've ever been. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I'm not much of a gamer, but I like it like passively and as a hobbyist. And so it was really interesting to see things. I got to try some VR. That was awesome. Ooh, was that your first time trying VR? Uh, I think I tried VR like 15 years ago when it was just an idea. And like I was at Disney World and they had an expo and they're like, put on these goggles, you're gonna get sick. And <laughs> this was not that. Apparently the technology has <laughs> really progressed since I was a child. And actually years ago I saw the like demo footage for Beat Saber. It's a game where you're holding lightsabers and you're slashing along with songs. And immediately I was hooked. I was like, I need somehow in my life to play that game. And yesterday that 
years-long dream came true, and I got to play Beat Saber, and it was fantastic. I am so excited for you. So my brother has the Oculus Quest, and when I was home visiting, he brought it over, and we were having so much fun with it. And I love Beat Saber. That one's a lot of fun. And then my mom's also really into this stuff as well. So then when he was going back home, because I was staying with my folks, I asked him, I was like, can I keep this overnight because I want to keep playing and I have to fly back to Boston? He's like, as long as you don't take it to Boston. He's like, that's fine. But my mom then later was like, I'm so glad you asked him if he could keep it because then she stayed up for like another hour, like late at night, just playing Beat Saber and also doing like the boxing one. It was, it was very cute. It was a lot of fun to watch. That's fantastic that it's a whole family affair for you folks. Do you have any plans on buying an Oculus Quest? Do you know? I don't know. I'm not actually sure how much they cost. Uh, Our colleague Matt Sumner, who went to PAX with him, he sent me a link for the Oculus Quest specifically because it's you don't need as fancy hardware specifically for Beat Saber, which is really all I'm interested in at this point. I could probably expand at some point, but he sent me the link, but they're sold out of all the different sizes right now, so I didn't even know how much it costs. So it's hard to decide whether or not I will buy it not knowing at all, but I think it's a good bit cheaper than the other options, right? Yeah, based on the quality that it provides, the cost in my mind isn't too bad because I was also asking my brother the same thing because I would really love one. So you can get the goggles for $400 and I don't know how much the games and like the different pieces, but I was surprised that just with the goggles that you can draw the room around you with one of the remote controls. So I thought it was going to be a fancier setup where you have to have the cameras in different locations because that's how Matt has it set up at his house where it's actually like drawing the room for you, but you can manually draw your space and then just play. So I think you can get in for like 400 bucks and maybe play Beat Saber, which sounds really tantalizing to me. Oh, it does. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, no. This is not a thing I need in my world right now, but uh, maybe I do. Uh, Sounds like a great way to start your post-thought vacation. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. I think I'll, I'll hold off for a little while, partly because they're not available to purchase right now, but I could see that in my future. Seems plausible. But yeah, as much fun as PAX was, it was a nice break in the week from the uh, work that I've been doing with clients, or I'm basically just finishing up right now, uh, which has been a essentially a two weeks long upgrade to React Router in the application that they're working on. And it has been a thing. Just basically on every possible facet, it has been so much harder than I would have wanted it to be. I've had so much less confidence than I would have wanted to have in the system. Um, I have a lot of questions about the API and why changes were made in the way that they are. And yeah, it's been a thing. Mm, So I know super little about React Router, except I know it's a thing because I've I've heard you and I think Matt also rant a little bit about it. But I take it this upgrade is especially difficult. There's a lot of breaking changes. what, What makes it a thing? Yeah, so I'm going from version 3 to version 5. Version 4 was actually the big breaking change, and then version 4 to 5 was a small upgrade based on sort of like being good semantic release citizens or semantic versioning citizens. As far as I understand it, 3 to 4 is a big breaking change, but we're just hopping straight to 5. And as a result, the fundamental approach to how you do routing sort of changed. Lots of little features changed. The way you write paths, you can't do nested paths anymore. You need to do exact paths. And honestly, I'm not even sure of all of the things that I'm doing. I've read the upgrade guide, done my best to digest it and understand what it is. But there's a lot that we're doing that I'm not fully convinced we need. I'm just not fully convinced we don't. And it's such a big thing that I'm just like, I'm just going to do all of the stuff that I think is necessary. But there's a lot of little renamings as well as like fundamental changes in the API. And 
I remember when it happened in the community and React Router had this release and there was a lot of animosity around it. A lot of like, why the breaking changes all the time with the breaking changes? People were very unhappy about it. And I was watching it from sort of the sidelines and I was like, I don't know, give them a break. They're trying to make the API better and you don't have to upgrade. The thing is you sometimes do have to upgrade. Like we are stuck on the version of React that we're on because React Router version three does not support there's a dependency there that we can't just stay on React Router version 3 forever. So that's not a true thing as far as I understand it now. Whereas initially I thought like, that's whatever, you'll just be fine. But that's not true. These things move sort of as an ecosystem. So we are sort of required to do this and it is a ton of work. And then there's complexities around like, I would love if I could have upgraded the dependency and then had TypeScript tell me everything that was wrong. There was a period of time where that's what I was doing, just chasing down each of the compilation errors of which there were many but they were relatively straightforward and I was able to, oh, it used to be called router, now it's called history. Oh, I need to change this parameter to this one. But TypeScript did a good job of highlighting that. Unfortunately, not everything was expressible in TypeScript. And so at one point after a few days of chasing it down, I was like, cool, it compiles. And in the back of my mind, I was like, but it does not work. (laughs) And went to the browser and confirmed uh, in many ways, it did not work. So then I got to do the harder work of trying to fix that. And then on top of that, there was the period of trying to fix all the tests. And the tests had been written in Enzyme. Most of the tests had been written in Enzyme. Some of them we've ported over to React Testing Library, which will do a better job. But there was a lot of manual mocking and a lot of Enzyme sort of things that were going on that made... Now the UI is back to working, and yet the next thing on the checklist is to go and fix all the tests that are broken because of implementation details. Uh, So the features actually work, but the tests are failing. Right. So it was all of those things. And then, frankly, in some cases, we were using the router incorrectly. We were manually manipulating the router object, so getting a reference to that, and then calling replace URL or push state or things like that. And ideally, we almost never do that. Ideally, we use the link component or the route component or the provided components to do that. And we very rarely need to drop down to that lowest level API. But unfortunately, we had that in a number of places. So the diff is, I think, something like 170 files changed with thousands of lines added, like probably 1,500 lines added, 1,400 lines removed, or some annoying diff like that. And at the end of the day, nothing should change from a user perspective. That's the goal here. And so it's both necessary, and we're convinced of that, but it's frustrating that it's this much work to do something that really doesn't deliver user-facing value. Yeah, that is tough how they've coupled it together, because that's why I was curious, and you answered my question for me, was what sort of instigated the idea that it was time to update for the router, and since you're also trying to update your React version and they're dependent on the router being updated as well. How's it feel now? Does it feel pretty close? Do you feel like there's still like another couple of weeks? Are there helpful like blog posts on this topic? Or is it still sort of like a new enough upgrade that other people aren't sharing lots of content about their struggles? I had to cobble some information together. Thankfully, Matt Sumner had actually started this change back over the holiday break. But unfortunately, due to shifting priorities, we ended up having to put that work down for a little bit. And then when I eventually revisited it, like the existing branch that Matt had been working on and I had worked with him for a little bit on, I tried to rebase it. And of the 160 files, 95 had conflicts. Oof. Uh, And so I looked at that and I was like, well, that feels like it's going to be a no. So then I just restarted fresh, but I was able to reference that and pull in. There were a couple of like helper functions that he had introduced, and I was able to see the patterns for the types of changes that needed to happen. So that work definitely was very beneficial, but it was unfortunate that we did have to sort of start over from scratch. 
Yeah, so there was less content than I would have liked. Like the official upgrade guide was not as complete as I would have liked, or it sort of glossed over things. But the more advanced use case was like, well, what do I do there? But I was able to figure out the things. And then it was really just doing the work. It is like as of right now, I think it is in the final stretches. But the last thing that's on the checklist is deploy this to a staging-like environment and see what broke. And unfortunately, many of the things are in the space like we're just going to have to have humans bang on the app and test any recent additions and see what happens. Like that's the mode we're in now. So, Gotcha. I was just kind of curious. Yeah, and it's also one of those hard upgrades where it's taking a long enough period that it's also transitioning the individual that's pushing it along. So each time there's a new person that comes in to like carry forward the torch, they're also having to like gain all the context that you have just picked up while yeah. you were bringing it as far. So that also feels like another hurdle to overcome. Like that's definitely true, but I think it's also partly a beneficial thing of the way we've done this. So I was driving the core work on this, but then I've slowly been collecting co-authors on the PR and the commit message. <laughs> I think we're up to five right now, five co-authors. But that means that a lot of people on the team have an understanding of this. And an interesting aspect of it is because routing is sort of a widespread concern and frankly, because we went... A lot of leaf nodes were doing routing things that they maybe shouldn't have been. But as a result, we got a pretty comprehensive look at the app. And it was an interesting sort of study of what all is going on here. What do we want to think about? Where do we feel like? What was the hardest upgrade? What are the different patterns that we've seen in the code base? So I don't think it was ideal that it played out that way. But there is benefit in this knowledge being shared because it is so central to how the whole thing works. And I'm sure we didn't get it 100%, right? So it's good that other people will be able to fix that as well. I'm curious, do you tend to leverage Slack communities for things like this? Like if there's a particular like upgrade or you're finding something challenging, I'm not sure what communities exist in Slack around React, but is that something that you tend to do? No, I'm terrible at that. I'm terrible at asking for help in general. I'm much more likely to, this is just like a personal, my inclination. I don't think it's a good thing. I think this is a bad thing about myself, but I will lean in and really try and power through I think if I'm working closely with a small team, then I'm very likely to reach out for help. But reaching out to larger groups is not a thing that I am comfortable with. Uh, and I think it is comfort is probably the right word to describe it. Like I feel embarrassed to speak up in front of a larger group like that. Whereas when it's a smaller group that we've worked together and things like I'm like, we can talk. I can ask for help. But no, I, I almost never do that. I don't even think to do it. It's the other thing, which is a frustrating. As you asked the question, it was like, huh, that's a really good idea. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like, And I like that you use the word comfort because that is, that is a daunting thing. Like, Even for a lot of us, if we're comfortable with asking for help, but then if we're comfortable asking for help within our own small team or within our friends, so that sort of like network that we know and we have that sort of like trust established with, but then to take those questions and then just go out to the world and be like, hey, I have a question, please be nice and go from there. So I, I completely understand. I was just curious. I often don't do it myself. I think the main time I did something like that is when I was working with Drupal, which was a whole new world. And I was like, I need help. And no one at ThoughtBot had experience, I think, at the time with Drupal. So I found the Drupal Slack channel. And it went really well. Like People were very nice. And it was also really cool because I even got to answer a question or two for other people. So then I felt like I was giving back to the community from which I was taking from. So, yeah, I was just curious how you feel about those since that's something that I will think about every now and then but often don't use myself either. But, yeah, that's a, a sort of a summary of, frankly, the past two weeks for me. 
And I, I feel bad. I feel like that was like an overly negative or gripe session sort of thing. And it's been great working with the people that I've worked with on it. And even the bits that I was commenting about the maintainers of the project. I think it's incredibly difficult to strike the right balance between actually improving something over time and changing the API when your understanding of the world gets better and maintaining backwards compatibility. So yeah, it's complicated, I guess, is my summary. <laughs> well, and I think you and I have a very strong awareness when it comes to like, negative is a strong word, but feeling like we're complaining about something because we also very much understand the other side of it, the maintainers and the people who are working hard. So yeah, I think it's just fair that some things are really hard and it's fair to feel like it's really hard. <laughs> Thanks, Steph. Well, along that same thread, I've also ran into some interesting work. So I was working with S3, where we have a team that's going to dump a file into S3, and then we have a nightly task that is going to look for that file and then do some work with the contents that are in that file. And working with the S3 API, all of that went really well, especially because the project that I'm working in is already doing some work with S3. So there's already some work for me to build on top of that made it pretty easy to implement. The part that felt a little tricky is when I was working with the S3 console, the actual UI, because we got to the testing phase where we wanted to replicate what was going to happen on staging and confirm that everything is wired up correctly. And so... I wanted to create what looks like a folder, behaves like a folder, and then contains a file inside of that folder. And the S3 architecture is a flat hierarchy, so there's really no such thing as like a folder. There's really just uh, buckets and objects are the primary resources in S3. So the file itself, even if the file is in within like folder A and then file name A is there, that is just an object, but it's prefixed and S3 will group objects with similar prefix names to look like it's within a folder. So it looks like the typical file structure that you would see on your computer. And so I was trying to figure out, it's like, well, I want to create a folder, which the S3 UI lets me do. It lets me add a folder. And so then I uploaded my file. But then when I was using the API to then query the contents, because my job expects there to be just one file inside of this faux folder, and I was getting back the folder as well, listed as an object. And I was like, well, that's confusing. Like, it should just be the file that's inside of that. And so I should really just be getting back one object. And it took me a little while to figure it out. And I eventually, through the upload process, I created a folder on my local machine, put the file in there, and then uploaded that structure to S3. So then S3 was happy and all of that worked. And then I was getting back the objects that I expected in my response. So everything worked out great. But that part uh, definitely took me like 15 minutes of just me like uploading, checking the API response, uploading, checking the API response and trying different things. And when I was Googling around, people were helpful in saying that, yeah, it's a flat structure. There's really no such thing as a folder. And I'm like, great, I get that how do I get S3 to mimic a folder and give it a file, but not give me back the folder as one as one of the objects in this fake folder? So yeah, I still don't really know, but I at least know one method that worked for me. So I had some S3 adventures, which was kind of fun because I hadn't worked with the S3 API in a while. And that's really nice. Like it's really great, like collaborative. I'm saying stuff that I'm sure people know, but it's one of those like, oh yeah, this is really cool. It's like such an easy way for us to share files and for someone to send us a CSV and then we can do stuff with that. So it's a really nice collaborative tool. I've actually never seen S3 used as a sharing mechanism. I find that kind of interesting. 
I don't think I've ever heard of S3 used that way. I think of it almost exclusively as just like the simplest object store that we can have. Just throw some stuff up there and be able to access it later. Although I've definitely struggled with the folder thing that you're talking about, and I still don't understand it at all. So end users of the application are able to upload to S3 directly or a client of the client or something like that? Sure. Yeah, that's a, a good point that I didn't really clarify on. So the team that's sending us a file is someone that's internal to the client that I'm working with. So it is very much like it's one of us that has access to that S3 bucket. And that team has some data that they would really like to enter into the system, but they don't want to have to do it manually. And they don't want to have to like email us the file. And then it's something that we do each week. There's kind of a funny story to go with that, where I think I've told you I'm not the best with picking up on sarcasm. <laughs> And there was a funny moment where the project manager on my team is one of the kindest, most positive souls that I've worked with. He's absolutely wonderful. And we're talking about this task and the fact that it's something that we want to do on a weekly basis. And I think now we're upgrading to we're going to do it nightly. But talking about the weekly basis, he was saying that, yeah, we'll just run it each Sunday. Somebody can just hop on the computer and during like drinking tea and eating biscuits, you know, run the rake task. And he saw my face and I was just like, oh, but no, because he invoked the word Sunday for the weekend and I want to protect that as much as possible and so he just saw my face and kind of kept going with it and we kept talking and then about 10 minutes later someone else on my team was like I'm pretty sure we need to circle back to alleviate Stephanie's concern that she still thinks we're going to do this on a Sunday (laughs) and I said yes thank you I did need that and now I can breathe again (laughs) They could just see you sitting very tensely, just kind of like, um, when are we going to talk about it, though? I was just waiting for a polite moment to interrupt and be like, all of this is great. Let's not do this on a Sunday. And luckily, someone, someone covered me. So I have funny little things like that happen. So there's now this ongoing joke about having this task run on a Sunday while drinking tea and eating biscuits. But we don't have to do that anymore. But yeah, I was taking that for granted, the idea that S3 can be used for easy exchange of files. It's not necessarily just for storage of like, say, user photos or something like that. Uh, But the idea that it is a very convenient way for internal teams that we trust if they want to send us a file, and then we can automate looking for that file and then doing work with that file. So that's what this particular task was achieving. So maybe that's not as common as I was thinking it is. I mean, my hot take on that would be, I don't understand how S3 works. So the idea of using this as a mechanism for people to be able to upload to quote unquote, the correct folder on S3, like I still don't know what that means. So expecting other people to be able to do that in a consistent way. I don't want to build a file upload function in an app. So I would also think about what other alternatives, but I wouldn't reach for S3 first because of that. Like I might reach for FTP first. Sure. Yeah, that's a good thought. And that's one thing I didn't try that I almost tried until I finally like happened to stumble upon the right magic sequence to get the the fake folder in the file that I wanted through the S3 console UI to get into the right bucket. I didn't try through the API. So using the actual like CLI might have been easier if I'd grabbed the file and uploaded it that way versus going through the UI. Because the other team's going to do the same thing. They have also automated on their end where they are generating the CSV file, and then they are going to automate uploading that to the S3 to the correct bucket. So there's really no room for human error unless it's like a programmatic error. And then that will place it into the correct bucket. And then our other program will then look for that file and do work with it. So that may alleviate some of like the human interaction concerns. Yes. So circling around to another topic, in regards to you leaving ThoughtBot, which still doesn't feel real. I know we're here. It's happening. 
but this is still such a a tough thing that it's gonna it's just gonna be weird when you're not here and to not have your presence but I'm at least very excited that I'll get to see you each week for these recordings but along those notes, I wanted to dig in a little deeper into sort of your experience here at ThoughtBot. The fact that you were here for seven years and have like a little bit of a retro. Seven years is a long time to, to do anything, especially in the tech world when a lot of folks are jumping around every couple of years. So what kind of kept you around? What did you enjoy about the consulting work? Uh, well, I think there's at least two different but very related questions in there of like what kept me around at ThoughtPod and then also what kept me around in consulting. And I think they're, again, very related, but they are distinct things in my mind. My time at ThoughtPod has been absolutely fantastic. And I think one of the interesting aspects for me personally is that it's been varied while I've been here. So having the podcast as an interesting thing that came in the more recent time, getting to work on Upcase when I did that, teaching a session of the boot camp, the Rails boot camp that we ran here in Boston and New York called Metis, working for countless different clients. There was just such variety and novelty. And so both with ThoughtBot, this is just an incredible organization that I've been absolutely honored to work with. And this was my dream job before I came here. And getting to join the team was fantastic and lived up to my hopes on that every day. More generally, though, working at a consultancy was an interesting thing that I had thought I would do for a little while. Like I had purposefully sought out being a consultant because I thought it would be a good way to get some experience and try a bunch of different things, which it definitely did that. Turns out I think I'm pretty well-tuned to that sort of work. The variety and the novelty I think is really useful for me. The the ability to explore new things, but also to be able to extrapolate across many different clients. So anything that I'm saying now is the summation of all of these different groups that I've gotten to see and what patterns work well and at what different sizes of companies and what technologies are interesting and how do people learn and how do people communicate and organize and just all of that was so engaging for me and so interesting and remained that throughout. There are definitely complexities. It's always There's always a trade-off. There was an interesting thing about each client I worked with. I had to sort of build trust to a certain extent. And in that sense, being part of ThoughtBot was fantastic because ThoughtBot does have such a fantastic reputation through the blog and other things that we've put out there that I certainly wasn't starting from zero. But at the end of the day, I'm still the person or one of the people that are joining a team and having to write a bunch of code for them or help them figure out features or things like that and earning their trust, earning a significant portion of trust. Because frankly, I much prefer when I'm not just sitting in the corner working on features, but I'm more part of a team and more engaged with them. And so having to rebuild that trust, each sort of reset was a little bit complicated, but each time I got there was so rewarding and getting to actually help an organization change and grow and evolve. And so, yeah, I think I love that challenge. I continue to love ThoughtBot. It's a fantastic place that uh, leaving is incredibly complicated for me. But like you said, seven years is a long time. So I don't know, maybe this is just a sabbatical. Who can say? It's a normal time for a sabbatical, right? I'll take a year off, go do some other stuff, come back, maybe slightly better rested. And here we are. Yes, but don't get my hopes up. <laughs> I mean, actually, totally get my hopes up. That's cool, too. <laughs> if you want to take a sabbatical and come back, that would be marvelous. Yeah, there is an interesting concept of consultancies that I wasn't really aware of because I, I was predominantly aware of ThoughtBot and how ThoughtBot is a consultancy and how they work as an agency. And then when I'd mentioned to other folks that I was interested in doing consulting work or I've told others that are not familiar with ThoughtBot that I do consulting work, that it has the concept that it's a lot of really like hard hours and it's typically something that you do right after college for some of that exposure and to gain experience, but you don't stay there for very long and then you move on into your like, in quotes, real job. 
And I just wasn't aware that was a thing or there's a lot of travel that's involved. So I do think there is a very special outline of work and how we work here at ThoughtBot versus how I would imagine a lot of other consultancies are perceived and how they work. So that resonates with me a great deal when you talk about like a lot of the novelty and variety and being exposed to all the different teams and then building trust with each team while it can be exhausting and a little daunting in the beginning. It is so rewarding in the end once you're there. And also I feel like it teaches me how to be a better human where I'm walking into a new team and I'm figuring out what it is that they're struggling with and where I can be the most helpful to their team and also figuring out ways that people feel very supported and finding those ways and being that person for them. So there's been a lot of value there and like having to join new teams frequently. I hadn't thought of it as like training for being a human being, but there is, I think, something there now that I I think back on it of consultants often come in at perhaps tumultuous times or the app is not performing as well or we're not shipping features or there's there's inherent tension that we're often coming into. Sometimes we need to have hard conversations about changing direction or shifting technological approaches or re-architecting things. And that's very difficult to do in a way that is not alienating or contrarian or other ways that can lead to further conflict. And that's actually some of the work that I really enjoy is finding the way to have collaborative conversations that maybe are not on the surface level super easy or shallow or anything like that, but having some deeper conversations and finding a path forward together. But yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed that portion, the human stuff. Looking back over your collaborations with all the various teams, what are some of the trends that you've seen with teams and technologies? Uh, yeah, from sort of a technical stance, there's less of we need to build a dynamic website and that's good enough. That's what we're doing. The introduction of mobile has just solidly complicated things. And like, I love a good mobile app, but it means that we have to think about the work that we're doing differently. Like APIs are now so common. And I, I think much more about platforms as opposed to websites. I'm not building a dynamic website anymore. I'm helping to build a platform that has an iOS app, an Android app, and maybe a data pipeline and some other things. And just getting some data, putting it into a database, and then showing it again in a list is not nearly enough. And so the thing that we're trying to do is much more complicated, and I'm not sure that we figured it out. Like, I felt pretty good about the stuff that we were doing when I started at ThoughtBot. And the we, I mean broadly the tech community, not ThoughtBot specifically. Uh, I still feel pretty good about what we're doing at ThoughtBot. But I think the complexity has just grown so much and we haven't yet fully figured it out. And I've been sort of on a frantic search for some answers to how do we build these apps, these fancy dynamic interactive client side things, because that's what everyone seems to want now. Uh, It's hard to get away from that. But how do we do that in a way that we can maintain over the long term? It's part of why I'm so interested in Elm and GraphQL and other solutions that I see giving us a foothold into building applications that we can maintain in the long term. So when you say we, the tech community, haven't really figured it out, you're speaking more directly to the maintainability of the different environments or the different like your apps and then also your website and then keeping all of that cohesive? Yeah, I think maintainability, although changeability is perhaps the word that I would do, like maintainability is critical, but more often than not, we're needing to build a thing and then change it slightly. And then, oh, the world has shifted out. No, we acquired a different thing and we need to integrate with somebody else. And there's ever evolving needs out of these platforms And so the ability to change over time and keep up with the feature set that we want, it's difficult. It's sort of the challenge. So, uh, And again, I think the surface area is so much bigger. So I don't think this is a fundamental failing. I think it's just the problem is harder. We're trying to do a harder thing now. And 
we're doing our best, our level best, but uh, I personally don't have a clear answer to how I would do all of those things given an arbitrary set of like, here's the team, here's the product, here's what we're doing. It's less clear to me now than it was six years ago, which is interesting to say. I guess that just speaks to the complexity and the options that we have in front of us. And so that's why we have specialized our knowledge and our training into where we have our different teams. So we have our mobile team, we have our website, we may even have like front end versus back end. And it's because there is so much variety that we can choose from. But then keeping everyone in sync is the, I think, as you're saying, the challenging place. Yeah, I'm with you. I haven't really thought that high about like thinking about things as more from a platform perspective because I am often on a very specific focus where I'm working with like the website or I'm working honestly yeah I haven't done any mobile work so I haven't been exposed to that as much I haven't worked in like React Native even though I know we've had a number of projects here that are using React Native so yeah I've been mostly relegated to the website to the back end to that area which I'm happy with (laughs) I wouldn't say relegated but (laughs) That just happens to be the the projects that you've been on. I actually haven't done much mobile work myself. I've done a little bit of React Native, but it's more that the existence of mobile apps requires that we have an API, essentially. And if you're going to have an API, then why not have all the different versions of the application use the API? And this has sort of been a recurring theme for you and I over the past couple months, I'd say. But that idea of the introduction of an API suddenly makes the task of building a dynamic website so much harder. Just the complexity is more like full stop. And that's complicated. I think for me, there's also a struggle of I want to be able to do all the things. That's part of why I came into tech is I love that ability to just create something, just have an idea and go hack for a weekend. And suddenly there's a real live version of this thing out there in the world. And this is maybe something that I need to accept isn't a possibility, but I I don't want to lose that. I don't want there to be facets of this work that I can't do because it's just like, that's just a whole other thing. Other people do that, not me. I like the idea of like, yeah, dynamic website, whatever. I got, I'm not a designer, so that's always been an aspect, but I at least know how to do it. I can. Ideally, someone else does. But um, <laughs> Whereas like deep data work is not necessarily my strong suit or mobile. These are different things and I've explored them a little bit, but they're not core competencies of mine. So Perhaps this isn't so much about the world changing and things, but I need to adapt. That may be one of the reasons that you highlighted earlier that you like the variety so much Mm -hmm. is because you feel like it's helping you keep in tune and educated in a lot of these ways. So then if there's something new that's come along, you're already very comfortable with like diving into something new because you've proven to yourself over and over again that like given a new task, given a new tech stack, given a new language, you know how to learn and you know how to figure it out from there. So I, I would be very surprised if you if you lose that trait. I, I suspect that's something that will always stay with you because it's part of your personality because it's what you seek out and what you enjoy. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Everything you're saying about like my enjoyment of variety feels true. The thing that I'm concerned about and that I may need to come to grips with is like the idea of a a renaissance man historically. That was a thing one person could know kind of all the stuff. And then that stopped being true at some point in history. I wonder if we're at a similar point or frankly, if we're well past that point, because there's tons I don't know how to do embedded operating system stuff. But I think web development, I felt like I understood pretty holistically for a long time, and I've really enjoyed that. And that may not be plausible forever, and we may have crossed that threshold for me, and I just need to accept it. Oh, no. This got real. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to figure out what that means. So when you talk about you need to accept it, 
I'm poking at the realness a bit further. Like, what are you accepting? The fact that there may be facets that you aren't fully comfortable with, that you don't feel like you can learn on your own and that you'll have to call a friend, ask for help, that sort of like you may have to accept it. Well, as we discussed earlier, I'm not very good at asking for help. So uh, (laughs) no, more that it's not reasonable for me to expect to stay up to date and in tune with all of the things that are encompassed within web development, that I need to accept that and choose the subset of things that I'm going to specialize on, but that I'm I'm now a specialist, maybe a pretty general specialist, but still, it's not reasonable to do all this stuff. So I have to accept that, let some stuff go, be like, you know what, I don't know anything about, I don't have a thing to say right now because I like all this stuff, but some facet of web development moving forward that I just don't know at all. It makes it sound like I know everything in web development. <laughs> I don't. That's just my goal. That's the thing that my brain tells me I'm supposed to do. Which, frankly, maybe this would be a freeing thing if I was just like, oh, I don't know. I can just ignore some stuff. Maybe. Yeah. Also, you've got the bike shed to keep coming back to. (laughs) So we'll have plenty of space and opportunities to continue to explore all the newfangled things that are out there. But circling back to the question that you asked earlier, you sort of framed it in a more general way. And I answered the technical side of the trends and the things that I've seen differently. And I think I went for that first, partly because that's the easy one for me, but also because I don't feel like the people and process stuff has changed as much. And if anything, that's one of the things that I really loved about ThoughtBot is the approach to building software that we have here felt true and feels true now. A large part of that is because it's mainly the like the baby version of Agile, very lowercase a, but just like, I don't know, have people talk to each other and work together and collaborate and communicate and don't introduce additional process or bureaucracy, but you know, try and build something in as little time as possible, put it in front of real humans, see if it's valuable, and then iterate on that and keep design and development integrated and keep development and product management and product management and the users. And ideally, all of those have sort of a big overlap, but not being this very sequential thing with multiple months between and all of that. So yeah, that, that was very true for me in the beginning and remains very true for me now. And also nicely simple. I like that. Yeah, that has kind of a simple nicety to it. Although it's something that still it feels very challenging. Like it sounds very simple. But then the idea of making sure that you are talking to users and that you are bringing developers into the collaborative space to also consider talking to users and having more insight into that area. It's not necessarily difficult, but I think it is something that takes awareness to make sure that is scheduled and something that is budgeted in and to everything that is done. And I feel like that is often where we'll step in to like remind teams or to help teams realize that this is a very important thing that's worth budgeting and incorporating into their team structure. But cool. Yeah. I was just kind of curious if you'd seen like teams or anything specific change over time, but all of that sounded great. All of that was really helpful. So as today is the last day womp womp, uh, that you're here at ThoughtBot, are you taking any time off? What's what's next? Yes, a little, just a little bit. Um, I'm bad at taking time off also. But my wife and I are planning to take off almost all of next week, uh, like almost a whole week. So wow. But yeah, we've got a little trip planned for this weekend. Uh, weirdly, it is also my wife's uh, last day at her current job right now, and she'll be starting a new job the following Monday. So we took a little bit of a break there in between things, and we're going to hang out. Uh, I think we might clean the house. That's pretty exciting. Um, no, that doesn't count. <laughs> uh, no, it's fun, though. We put on a ridiculous playlist, and it is actually, we, we enjoy doing it. But I'm also really hoping to have a little bit of time to poke around with some technologies that have been on my spend more time with list for a while, but I have not had the time, specifically Elm. 
I've just enjoyed so much of the work that I've done in it. And so I want to keep exploring that. Uh, and the other is Inertia JS, which I've talked about a little bit on previous podcasts. But in terms of that, like, I need to find an answer to how do we make stuff, but still have the fancy client sides. It's actually one of the most interesting and unique answers I've seen to that. So stay tuned in future episodes. I will probably be talking about that more. But um, yeah. Very cool. So you're already keeping up with the newfangled things, and you were worried. <laughs> There's clearly nothing for you to worry about. Your vacation is playing with new technology. Yep. Or maybe I should just throw my computer out a window and uh, go rent a cabin in the woods. Who knows? Uh, one of the two. I'll let you know next week. I'm excited for the inertia conversation. So let's go with that one. <laughs> Makes more sense. Cool. We'll do that. Uh, should we wrap up? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.